The following podcast contains explicit language. You're naked and you're pressed against somebody's naked body, so you can't get <laughs> any more awkward than that. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's podcast about sex. I'm New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor, and with me today in studio is the psychologist and author, Dr. Tai Tashiro. Hello, Tai. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Tai's latest book is called Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. It comes out this week, and the chapter on sex and dating is so harrowing. Like, I think I was like, I was cringing and I was relieved and I was everything all at once. <laughs> well, that sounds like sex. Uh, Precisely. Yeah. I had a hard time actually during copy edits going through and rereading it sometimes. Some of the stories were so cringeworthy and uncomfortable, but I'm happy with the way it turned out in the end. And it was actually the fastest chapter to write in Awkward because sex is just so inherently awkward. It wasn't hard to find the case studies that you analyzed there. I had, <laughs> yeah, I had dozens, I guess, of, uh, of examples and <laughs> chose two of my favorites that were kind of PG-13 R-rated and uh-huh. not too explicit. But uh, yeah, but I mean, everybody, I think, has an awkward sex story. I want to find out why dating and sex specifically are so damn awkward. But I'm wondering if first, maybe you can just tell us what is awkwardness? Why does it exist? Yeah, I, I like actually like the root of the word awkward. Mm-hmm. It comes from Old Norse. It's a word, afugur, and that means facing a different direction, which is kind of cool because it's, it explains why people are awkward. So they might miss social cues or they might miss social context. But it also means that they're more likely to see the world a little bit differently. And that could have a certain upside to it. But that could lead to awkward moments. Awkward moments are just when... We deviate from minor social expectations. So like zip zippers or those kinds of things. They're actually pretty minor. Wait, what's a zip zipper? A zip zipper. Keeping your zipper up, I guess. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. When your fly is down. That's right. Yeah. Gotcha. Because having your fly down is not a catastrophe. No. But we have a really strong emotional reaction to these minor social deviations. And some people are awkward people, which means that they're just more prone to having awkward moments. And it's partly because they see the world a little bit differently. They see it in a more focused and concentrated kind of way. And that can be advantageous. But at other times, it means that they're less likely to pick up on the dynamics of social life, which moves so fast and so broadly that that kind of sharp focus isn't a good fit. You write that online dating is uniquely awkward, which was interesting to me because on one hand, you sort of lose a lot of social cues when you're trying to set things up with someone through the screens. But on the other hand, I've always thought that that's sort of why digital flirting was good because <laughs> nobody can see if you're blushing or right. if you're stuttering, right? <laughs> no, that's true. I, I think that is true. You do remove <laughs> some awkward elements. But are uh, you just forestalling them, like kicking the can until you actually do meet each other in person? Th- that's a great point. I, I think that's what happens. So... We kind of overpromise online, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of good data now to show that you know men are two inches taller than they really are, or uh-huh. make twenty thousand dollars more than they really do, and then when they meet in person, sometimes people have further to fall or to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. You give the example of say somebody making a grand proposal to someone and completely misinterpreting that. You you cite some studies about how awkward people tend to misinterpret platonic moments for a romance. That's right, and 
Kind of all great romantic moments, though, are ones that could just as easily be painfully awkward that you think of. Like, I knew that we were in love because, like, we locked eyes and we were tongue tied. Well, that's just awkwardness, <laughs> isn't it? That totally is. That's a great point, because romance, I guess, is a violation of what's expected. Uh-huh. Like on Valentine's Day, for example, if somebody just does the most basic thing possible, mm-hmm. it, it's actually kind of unromantic. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, romance has this element of surprise, but surprise is exactly one of the emotions that's most closely related to awkwardness because awkwardness is this deviation from what's socially expected. Yeah. So the the line between surprise or romance Mm -hmm. and being awkward is a super fine line. In some ways, isn't that what makes romance so great when it happens? That there's always has to be a risk associated in some way that you could do your grand romantic gesture and the sort of nervousness of thinking, what if I get down on one knee and she goes, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, that's why it's so exciting when, when someone says yes in that moment. That's exactly true. It's uh, it's fraught with peril, I guess, each romantic gesture. And I, I, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we love to talk about romantic relationships so mm-hmm. much. And, and even sometimes the anticipation of what's going to happen I think sometimes that's just as sweet as the outcome because there is this 50-50 chance that things could go horribly wrong. (laughs) Or not 50-50 if you're in the wrong (laughs) circumstance. Yeah. Sometimes awkward people, it's uh, maybe lower odds. You also write about how awkwardness can be a really positive force in people's lives. I mean, is there any way to sort of enhance that awkwardness to power our love lives? So awkward people, you know, they really struggle during the first three to five minutes of an interaction, Mm -hmm. typically. I mean, they might struggle past that, too. But for most awkward people, that's the toughest part of an interaction. And so if you can get past those initial social graces or those initial social rules that they might struggle with, you have just as good of a chance of finding somebody who's an interesting person with good values or whatever else it is that you want. Um, It's just that those first few minutes get in the way. They're also, (laughs) they love to nerd out, you know, they're they're Mm -hmm. very passionate people and they're very enthusiastic about whatever they love, Um, whether that's Game of Thrones or mathematics or whatever it might be. But that same enthusiasm can play out in their personal relationships. And I oftentimes find that awkward people are very thoughtful. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're just thoughtful by nature because they have to be. They have to think about how to navigate a social situation before they get into it. You point to some interesting studies about awkward people in relationships. And it was really remarkable to me because it sounds like the only person who thinks a relationship is going to fail because of the awkwardness is the awkward person, not the person who loves them. The person who loves them just loves them. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. So there's kind of two questions there. Mm -hmm. One is, would awkward people be less likely to be in a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. because they're awkward? And there's actually a counterintuitive answer to that, which is that awkward people, when they're young adults, uh, they're actually more likely to be in a romantic relationship. And that's partly because their romantic relationships are longer. Now, why that's the case? Well, there's a lot of speculative things I guess I could toss around. One is that they just don't like dating probably as much as other people because uh, dating is this constant pressure to be good uh, with charisma and, mm-hmm. and have some uh, social skill about you. They'd rather just get to the depth and get to know somebody and, mm-hmm. and have that be good. So maybe it's an aversion to dating, but it could also be that maybe they're a little more cautious because they're more hesitant to make the move in the first place. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're more 
certain about whether someone would be a potentially good romantic partner than someone who's more confident in their social skills and just charges ahead. Yeah, that's true, because I end up in so many stupid relationships I shouldn't be in, um, which is my way of saying I'm not awkward at all. I can be very... Well, this is interesting, because you sort of refer to that as the sort of category of awkward people, but you also point out that kind of anyone can be awkward. I mean, is it that awkward people have a hard time dating, or dating just makes us awkward? So when they look at uh, both partners in a romantic relationship, and they assess the satisfaction of each partner, and also the degree of awkwardness in each partner, Mm -hmm. there's an interesting finding that emerges, which is that women who are dating an awkward guy Mm -hmm. are just as satisfied as women who are dating a non-awkward guy. Okay. But guys who are awkward are less satisfied in the relationship. So even though their partner is satisfied with what's going on, the awkward person somehow feels dissatisfied with how things are going. And is that the case in the other direction, if there's an awkward woman in a relationship? Interestingly, it doesn't work the other way. So awkward women are just as satisfied as women who are non-awkward, and their partners are just as satisfied as men who are dating a non-awkward woman. This strikes me as simultaneously sad because the awkward man is unnecessarily insecure, And yet it also strikes me as very unfair because this woman loves you unconditionally. Stop punishing her by not trusting her or doubting her. That is so true. And when I talk to awkward guys about their romantic relationships, I think that's one of the issues I see the most Mm -hmm. is just saying, hey, take it easy. And if she says that she loves you and if she says she trusts you and wants to be in a relationship, her opinion is probably accurate. And your perception of it might be a little bit off. It's interesting. So many of these sort of questions of awkwardness are about the moments when, for some reason, we can't get out of our own way. That those awkward moments are often, it's in your head, and then it amplifies. You're like, oh my god, my fly is down. Now I'm freaking out. And then everyone sees you're freaking out, and they too feel the freak out. And that that is the awkward moment. Th- that is quintessentially awkward, actually, in, in, <laughs> in uh, neuroscience studies. So if you watch... Um, non-awkward people in social situations, Mm -hmm. they tend to process social information in a really quick kind of way, almost an intuitive kind of way. Um, Awkward people, the the information travels differently and it meanders over to their book smarts. And so now they're engaged in this really complicated task of trying to solve a social situation in the same way they'd solve like a math problem or a puzzle. What does that mean? Like if you're if instead of just being like that person looks happy, you think I see a smile. Smiles mean happiness. Or... Exactly. So instead of saying she loves me, you say, well, what's the evidence I have ah. that she loves me? And then that gets you into this loop that can oftentimes be unhelpful. That's interesting. It's also sort of trusting that people are actually being honest in a certain way that that when somebody says, like, I'm OK with this, that they really are or Exactly. And the stakes are so high, oftentimes in romantic relationships compared to our other relationships, that on the one hand, there's some reason to be more careful about yeah. processing information. But, Absolutely. But you can also easily go too far with that. One thing I loved is that you gave, you went through sort of how an awkward person might be able to sort of shortcut and make things work better. And one of my favorite things is that you described, you said, don't be a wallflower, literally, about you point out this craziness that I've noticed, too, that just the physicality of like where you choose to stand will define what actually happens in your life in this way. It's a unbelievably common sense finding in psychology that Uh that disappoints psychological researchers who want a fancier uh, result. But I'll give you an example. So in Boston College, a few decades ago, they did this really intricate study. 
mm-hmm. and it was in one of the dormitories, and they gave everyone in the dormitory an exhaustive battery of psychological tests. So intelligence, personality, attitudes, values, and they wanted to see which of these variables will predict who's the most likable or who has the most friends by the mm-hmm. end of the semester. The result was that none of those variables were the strongest predictor. It was whose rooms were closest to the entrance and exits. Those were the people that had the most friends at the end of the semester. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's literally, don't be a wallflower, just get into a high traffic <laughs> area, not in the middle uh-huh. of it. But yeah, the, the more exposure you get to more people, that's actually the best predictor of whether you'll make friends. So the housing department at every university actually is controlling who becomes popular at the university. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. In fact, one time I had an opportunity to tell a student they had some housing conundrum and they had the opportunity to move by the exit. And I, I told them, absolutely. If you, if you want to make friends, do it. <laughs> that's right? right. That's right. But it works the same way in romantic relationships. And, and it seems so common sense. I think sometimes that we overlook it. It's just that you, you got to show up. You know, showing up's half the battle, right? Yeah. And they say this in work-related things. But in romance, it's it's maybe even more important. It's also, to some degree, there's also just a little bit of like, if you can weather the awkwardness of standing in the middle of the party and waiting for someone to talk to you, there's going to be a few minutes that are awkward. But if you get through that, then you're somewhere. I had this one girlfriend that used to always tell me that um, when we would like go to a bar, she's like, well, I really want to meet someone tonight, so let's not sit down. And her theory was that she said, if you're standing up, people can walk up and talk to you. Or if you're, say, on a bar stool, sort of, you know, there's there's a way for somebody to get up next to you and talk to you or even make eye contact because you're just physically standing. Whereas if you sit down, nobody makes eye contact with you and you sort of look closed off in a way. That, that is so true. I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant philosophy and a great way to enact that. So, yeah, just put yourself in high traffic areas. I, in college, I, I got really good at pouring keg beer. And part of the reason was, well, that's where everybody's going to go. And so you're just in a high traffic area. Uh-huh. In that case, you're actually doing a service for yeah. people, which which can be advantageous. Are there any other techniques you found that like that, where the answer is actually simple to sort of shortcutting the feeling of what makes me stand out or what makes people talk to me? Yeah, I, I think once um, someone does talk to you, one of the pressures that almost everybody puts on themselves in countries like the United States is that we have to perform. So we have to be charismatic and mm-hmm. be interesting. But almost every communication study shows that it's more about how you listen and how you get the other person to talk about what they're interested in rather than what you have to say. So really the way to make a conversation go and to have the other person enjoy it is to get really good at asking interesting questions that get them talking about things that they feel good about and that they're passionate about. Isn't the asking of questions sort of a performance, too? I I totally think it is. Yeah. Uh, But it's a different skill set than Mm -hmm. saying, I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. Uh, Instead of saying, so tell me about this Ah. or tell me about what you hope to. These kinds of uh, questions tend to open-ended questions, elicit interesting responses. And then if you can show some genuine interest in what they're saying and, and, and really listen to them, people will walk away from that thinking that you are really interesting uh, that you were really charismatic. And um, actually, they're like, I'm so interesting. We talked about something I like, so this person is interesting. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. It's just a it's kind of simple projection. I think you mentioned that the way we think about doing well in a social setting in America, is that a culture-bound thing, the feeling of needing to perform in a social setting? It seems to be. So there's some cross-cultural research that looks at how do people 
gauge what social success would be or what a good interaction would be. Yeah. So in countries like Japan, for example, it's more about how well did I harmonize with the rest of the group and the rest of the team? Did I not stick out uh-huh. uh, in the situation? Oh, and if you can maintain that kind of harmony and evenness, then you see yourself as successful in that situation. Hmm. So it's, it's a very different kind of standard. And other cultures have uh, varying standards that are different than those. Whereas we go in and say, I want to win the social <laughs> <Yeah>. interaction, <laughs> which inherently exactly. means no one won because that's just unpleasant. <laughs> exactly. And we've all been in interactions where both people have that mentality, like, I, I got to win this interaction. And both people end up being dissatisfied. And I think in dating, maybe especially in New York, uh, that mm-hmm. can happen quite a bit where people feel some sort of pressure to put on a performance. But in fact, no, it's about having the other person giving them some space to be able to perform and tell you about themselves. Speaking of performance, (laughs) a very harrowing section on sexual awkwardness in in this book. (laughs) Is it safe to say sexual awkwardness is the most horrifying form of awkwardness? I, I, yeah, I would say so. I mean, <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't think of anything that would beat it. Kind of anything that happens when you're naked is more extreme, right? <laughs> like success when you're naked, that you're like, I really did that. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> um, and awkwardness when you're naked, like there is nowhere to hide. No, no, you're, you're naked and you're pressed against somebody's naked body. So you can't get any more awkward than that. And so, yeah, just the context by itself, whatever is going to happen that deviates from some kind of expectation Mm -hmm. is going to be super magnified. You had an incredibly harrowing story about an awkward misunderstanding during sex. That's right. So it was this couple, they were married, Mm -hmm. and they'd been married for a few years, happily married, I should say, and and great people, both of them. Uh, They had just had a child, though. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of sex uh, after you have your first child. So it had been a number of months since there had been any kind of action. And one night, the grandparents were babysitting, and so the couple had their first opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so they plunged into it, and things were getting hot and heavy. And the woman says to the guy at one point when he's on top of her, get awesome. And he's like, yeah, that's great, you know, because he's really into it. But then he's like, well, what does it mean to get awesome during sex? Because the sex was already good, he thought. So (laughs) the question was, how can I take this up to the next level of sexual awesomeness? (laughs) So he he was a good athlete. And so he uh, kept one hand down on the bed and then kind of went into this upward dog, I guess, kind of position. (laughs) And he was muscular. So he flexed his biceps thinking this would be... Like peak sexiness, and then striking his, a pose is a harrowing moment for yeah. any level. Because like when you strike a pose incorrectly, you just sit there looking like a jackass. I mean, it's very aspirational uh, yes. and, and brave. <laughs> so he strikes a sexy pose. Yeah, bicep flexed, and he's he's looking at it, very pleased with himself. And then his wife says, "Get off me." She had not said "get awesome." She had said "get off me" because he was, I, I guess, too heavy on her, and so. It was horribly embarrassing, and uh, but they were able to laugh about it, and it was it was all good. I mean, among the terrors of this is the idea that I always assumed that by being married or in a relationship, things wouldn't be awkward anymore, but it can still be awkward. It, it totally can, and I think it, sometimes it's even more awkward because the sexual script gets so embedded and so oh. consistent, which married couples complain about sometimes. They say, well, 
it's the same old sequence of things and, yeah. you know, top, bottom, whatever. And so when someone deviates from that tight script, it can be even more awkward sometimes. That's so funny. He's like, man, we're going to do something crazy. I'm going to get awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. So but couples do this, you know, and that's, <laughs> I think, one of the reasons why the Fifty Shades phenomenon has been so popular. It provided couples a way to mix it up a little mm-hmm. bit. But and gave uh, you a script for like, we're going to try something wild. And if it's weird, we can stop. And ha 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 ha. Th- that silly book told us to do this. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes half informed about how to do it. And so mm-hmm. that's why uh, there was a exponential increase in the number of emergency calls for uh, couples who need to be released from their handcuffs or who had had <laughs> some kind of other injury as a result of uh, ill-informed S&M. <laughs> Are there any particular strategies for getting over sexual awkwardness? Like, how do you even get past one of those moments? The, the first step is just to assume that sex is awkward. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's okay. So it, it's awkward for you. Mm-hmm. It, it's awkward for the other person, too. Yeah. Unless they're a narcissist and totally self-confident. But, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awkward for everybody because everybody has different needs. Mm-hmm. And... I was listening to your podcast from a few weeks ago about the different ways that women orgasm, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's just baffling how many different ways there are, <laughs> right, to reach that same point. And so by definition, then, someone would have to adapt their techniques or behaviors mm-hmm. with each new partner. And that's going to be awkward sometimes. So the best thing I think couples can do is just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that good sex sometimes comes from good coaching, yeah. In the sense that you're talking in real time about what's happening and what could be a little bit better. But you're also talking about that's really good or do more of that. And that kind of constant banter eventually leads to more coordination. I know. Finding a way for that banter to feel sexy as opposed to just like really, really uncomfortable and awkward right. is like actually <laughs> the great <laughs> hurdling yeah, task yeah. of every sex yeah. life. You don't want to give a lecture uh, necessarily uh, uh, in, in the middle of uh, sex going on. But if you can provide a few things here and there, because couples will have sex, in, you know, quite mm-hmm. a bit at the start. If there's a few things yeah. each yeah. time, then maybe over time that builds to something better. It strikes me that when I was reading this, I started thinking, well, of course sex is awkward because it's just inherently illogical and weird that we take the ugliest parts of our bodies and rub them <laughs> against each other. And that's not supposed to be awkward. Yeah, this Parts of your bodies that do all the embarrassing things that a body can do. And now we're using them. There's right. going to be so many uncomfortable moments when you're like, can I laugh? Do I laugh? What now? Yeah. <laughs> well, especially because the bridge between those parts and the rubbing uh-huh. and all this stuff. <laughs> Is supposed, it's aspirational to intimacy or love or these things that are really kind of beautiful and we mm-hmm. think of as pristine and pure. But, but it's a really sloppy, just kind of down and dirty kind of thing. And so there's a disconnect between, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes what we want to represent and sometimes what it actually is sometimes. It's also this similar to that idea of romance in a way that it's you're taking something that's objectively gross, but it's great because you're in <laughs> yeah. the your mindset is just different in that moment. That's totally true. You know, and the the meaning uh, surrounding sex, obviously, is is so important for whether something's good or whether mm-hmm. something's awkward or or just even unpleasurable. And it's so subjective that I suppose there's no objective manner to say, like, I'm going to do the right thing. Like, the script changes wildly in every single moment. It, it absolutely does. I mean, even if you think about how to make out, mm-hmm. you could think this is definitely the best way to make out. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you'll encounter somebody who has a you know, different style of doing it. And then all of a sudden you have too much tongue or you're too yeah. much of a pecker or whatever it might be. As we talk about this, I'm developing a theory that perhaps 
the secret to all dating is just literally how much awkwardness can you weather. I think that really controls (laughs) one's ability to date. I totally think it does, because maybe now with all the options we have and the Mm -hmm. wealth of alternative possibilities with online dating, it's easy just to hit eject when things get awkward or get a little bit uncomfortable. And that's okay if that's what people want or that's where they're at. also pre-screen, right? That you know that like I have X quantity of awkwardness I can tolerate in my life. (laughs) And so I'd rather talk to this person for three weeks by texting before I put myself out there and meet them in person. If you have a low awkwardness threshold, then that's a a great strategy. (laughs) Uh, You know, some people, oddly enough, kind of like the awkwardness. They like the quirkiness of some people. And they'll be bored if somebody doesn't have these kind of weird eccentricities about them. I mean, I suppose that's what love is, right? That someone's awkward elements just seem charming to you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The way they deviate from what's normal is a perfect fit with the things that you need them to deviate on. You use this amazing phrase. You describe gerrymandering the friend zone (laughs) and the sort of the ways that the boundaries of romance and friendship create this sort of like zone of confusion and awkwardness. I totally think that's true. We, uh, I think it used to be the case, like for baby boomers, for example, mm-hmm. that the line between having a romantic relationship and just being friends was so much more clean. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like there's two districts. Now it's like we live in a state with multiple districts. So you can mm-hmm. be in a romantic relationship. You can be friends with benefits. You can be platonic. Uh, You could have exes who are still in the mix and you kind of Mm -hmm. bring them back in every now and then. There's all these different forms that romantic interaction takes now. And I think it's hard to know which zone you've been districted into by somebody else. If you're in the friend zone or maybe if you're just there for uh, sex or you're just there for companionship or what is it? And I think those lines have gotten really blurred. I've always thought that the motivation of the many motivations one might have to, say, have a friend with benefits as opposed to just finding someone else is, well, on one hand, it's hard to find someone to be in a romantic relationship with. But in some ways, I always think that it's actually an aversion to enduring the awkwardness necessary to actually date, That to say, I'm already comfortable with this person. Like, you sort of get to take the shortcut past all of the weirdness and awkwardness and potential rejection because to sort of, A, drop the stakes and B, return to an ex or return to a friend or somebody who you're already perfectly comfortable being like, that was a fart or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, when you get to the we can fart in front of each other stage, that's pretty pretty comfortable. and uh, <laughs> It's tough to let that go, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think it just a friends with benefits situation, it, it does take out some of the awkwardness because mm-hmm. even the define the relationship talk, th- yeah. that can be super awkward and that can be a really high stakes situation where mm-hmm. you say, I'd like to be where one little word can throw you off in some weird way. Yeah. Or yeah, you worry about the one word throwing you off at least. No, exactly. Or or the person says it in a weird way or weird mm-hmm. phrasing. You're like, I think they said they love me, but I'm not sure. Or, you know, <laughs> um, or I think they said they want to be committed, but I'm not sure. And there's this discomfort because the logical thing would be, well, why don't you just ask them for clarification? Mm-hmm. But you know, it's so awkward. Sometimes we we feel like we should know, like we should have some sort of mental telepathy to have figured it out. Mm-hmm. But in fact, everybody gets really confused in these situations. So it's OK for it to be awkward and, and talk about it a little bit more. It's so crazy to me how often somebody will tell me like we had the talk and I'm like, so what was the result in the talk? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it was a blur of stress. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. I, I think that happens actually more often than having clarity. Yeah. <laughs> 
we're such bad communicators. I have this friend who had, I think, the most harrowing example of that, which that she'd been seeing a guy who was a friend and then they started sleeping together or they're in a murky situation. And they were reaching the point where they needed to have some kind of talk about what was really mm-hmm. happening, what are the parameters of their relationship. And it just so happened that on some night they like ate some weed gummies and they're partying and she's like, oh, shit, I ate way too many. And at that exact moment, he's like, so I want to talk about what we are. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, I don't know. We talked for an hour and I have no idea what happened. And she's like, even in the moment, I knew this is I can't do this. I have to do it. And because she was high enough that I think she couldn't quite put the brakes on and be like, no. Yeah, right, right. In the way when you're doing the thing where you're like. I have to pretend I'm not high. I have to pretend I'm not high. (laughs) I have to pretend I understand what's happening in front of me and I don't. Hold it together. Hold it together. Yeah. I know that I was like, I think you just need to call him and do it again, but without any chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable, actually, how often I've heard about these conversations happening under intoxication or being high or because that's when you are not as nervous, right? Yeah. So you're ready to do the difficult thing, except you're not going to be able to execute the difficult thing yes. <laughs> once you're... <laughs> yeah, or, or comprehend what the other person's trying to tell you, and then it's a muddled you know, dialogue anyway. So I, I think, yeah, oftentimes it is so confusing. That's such a double-edged sword to have your inhibitions low enough to do the thing you're afraid of doing, <laughs> but still be sharp enough to do it correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought of it that way, but that is very cruel. <laughs> Being a human is so hard. It is tough. It's tough. I have this ongoing debate about whether making friends or finding a romantic partner is more difficult. And the reason for this, you talk about sort of the awkwardness of trying to make friends. Hmm. And there's something so unbearably honest about, I think you're a cool person. Can we be cool together? In a way that you sort of can't hide behind, let's just have sex, or (laughs) we're supposed to be going out and looking for partners, right? The idea of, like, there's something so unbearably vulnerable about that, I've always thought. And I'm curious what you think, having looked at the level of social discomfort people experience when trying to make friends versus trying to date. Am I an anomaly in that No, no, you're you're not at all. And and in fact, uh, there's a lot of science to support that idea. So as awkward as sex can be... Being vulnerable emotionally is an even bigger risk, I think, mm-hmm. because if things don't go well, sometimes it goes beyond awkward. It goes into, wow, I'm, I'm pretty devastated by this. So people like are your body. You're like, oh, my body did something weird. I can't control that. Whereas, yeah, right. To really feel that you are vulnerable. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. No. Yeah. Especially if it's somebody who really knows you well, mm-hmm. you know, which in romantic context is sometimes the case that we feel like this person knows us uniquely and knows us deeply part of the reason we want to be in a romantic relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And then if we say, hey, I really like you, uh, even if it's romantic or even if it's platonic, we can feel really let down if that doesn't work out. But we should do it more often because (laughs) there's some troubling statistics that show that although we have the same number of friends and the same number of family members that we've always had for the past four or five decades, Mm -hmm. the number of people that we can talk to about a serious problem or that we can rely on in a tough situation, has actually gone down to the point that less than half of people in the United States have someone they can talk to if they have a serious problem. You know, we seem to have lost the intimacy in our relationships, even though we've kept the quantity. That's so strange. Why is that? Well, I think it goes back exactly to your question, which is that we're we're scared. Mm -hmm. You know, we're scared to say the things or ask the questions that would take our relationships to a deeper level and make them more intimate. And that always requires being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And we seem to have become allergic to being vulnerable uh, for some reason. I'm not sure why that's the case, but 
at this point, this is what we know. And the best advice I can give people is that relationships, I mean, sex is awkward, but relationships are just awkward. Yeah. And it always requires a bit of risk taking. It requires Mm -hmm. a bit of vulnerability. But the payoff for doing that is enormous. I really encourage everybody when I started thinking about this that I was like, I never have awkward moments. All I have is romance. And I was like, wait, I am describing the most awkward things on the planet. But in my head, I just convinced myself they were wonderful. Right. Right. right? That I'm like that moment when like neither of us could say a single word is because we were so in love. And you're like, maybe that guy thought we were having the most awkward moment in the world. But everyone just lie to yourselves. You'll never feel awkward again. (laughs) I think framing takes you takes you quite a ways. you know. Tied to Shiro's book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome, is on shelves now. And at the end of every Sex Lives, we always ask our listeners to call in. And I would love to hear people's stories about the most awkward thing that ever happened (laughs) while having sex, while trying to ask someone out on a first date. I want to know those awkward stories, but I also want to know how you recovered. What happened next? Did it kill everything when you got high and tried to have a define the relationship talk? Or was there any way to recover and how? Call in with those thoughts, and if you have any questions for Ty in particular, we'll give him a call. But you can call us and leave a voice message at 646-494-3590. Sex Lives is produced by Afim Shapiro and Jordan Bell. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.